0: Radio Maria England now presents The Hermit, Part 1. The Hermit has been created by the author David Talkington, who has re-edited, abridged his book Wisdom from the Western Isles. David is also the narrator. I want to tell you a story. It's my story. It's the story of how I, Peter Calvay, became a hermit over 60 years ago. The story of how I came to realise that I needed ever greater time for solitude. I needed it for prayer. It's the story of how I finally found it in the Outer Hebrides, those remote islands 50 miles or more off the west coast of Scotland. But before I left for my remote retreat... I thought I was called to the monastic way of life, and so I stayed for some time at Mount St. Bernard, the Cistercian Monastery in England. But it was not enough. Somehow I felt I needed ever greater time for solitude, and it was this desire that drew me to the south of England, to visit the Carthusian Monastery in West Sussex. But even this didn't seem to be what I was looking for. I needed greater solitude. The truth of the matter was I wanted to give myself radically to God as a contemplative and, gradually, I began to realise that neither the Cistercian nor the Carthusian way of life was for me. Then, during my first year teacher training in London, I became friendly with another young teacher who came from South Uist in the Outer Isles. He invited me to stay with him for a month's holiday in the summer. Then the local headmaster asked me to stay on and teach for a year in his school at Dallabra. During that year, I decided to make a year's retreat on the remote island of (laughs) Vatisei. I stayed there for four years. It was then that I made the decision to continue, as a layman, giving my life to God, but against the background of a simple Hebridean way of life. Then I was offered a job as a part-time shepherd on the island of Barra. It was looking after the sheep that were left to graze on the islands off Bruinish. So I made my home on the small uninhabited island of Calvay. But I was adamant I wanted total solitude. So when later people asked me for my spiritual help, I insisted that I could only be of service to them by post and I rejected all correspondents who wanted to visit me in person. Then, one day, as you will hear, a new quick-witted correspondent trapped me into seeing him against my better judgment. The story that follows is what happened next. But it is not really my story, but the story of the American academic, James Robertson, who caught me off my guard. So I will leave him to tell the story, his story, for himself. At last, Saturday the 5th of September came round, and I was sitting in the tiny departure lounge, waiting for the hostess to take us aboard the island Plane. I could see its small but impressive silver frame in the all-too-rare Glasgow sunshine. The air hostess appeared like a genie out of a bottle. <laughs> I didn't see her come in, but there she was in the middle of the room, inviting us to take our seats. I wanted to pick up my bags and run like mad to get a good seat, but it wouldn't do for me to rush, wouldn't do for me to make an exhibition of myself. I knew these islanders and wouldn't mind betting they knew exactly who I was, where I was going, and why. Why? After all, I'd be practically the only Protestant on a Catholic island. And I'd be staying in the house of the local parish priest. No, it wouldn't do to make a fool of myself. I'd no intention of letting the side down. All was calm and peaceful as we glided into the sky. Glasgow slouched below, gradually disappearing as the captain pointed the proud and willing nose of the plane towards the outer isles. My mind drifted back to the various events that led to my journey to the Outer Hebrides. It all started in January. I suddenly became aware of the direction that my life was taking. To be more honest, I began to realize that it had no direction at all. Something terrible had happened in my life, turning it upside down. My dear wife, Jennifer, died in childbirth, and I turned to drink to drown my sorrows. She was a Presbyterian, and so it was to her minister that I turned for help. He was a deeply spiritual man, a member of the Iona community. I was living in Edinburgh at the time, and so he found a place for me on a course at Juniper Green, a Catholic retreat centre, Deep down, I knew I was not an alcoholic, but with his help, I managed to stop drinking before I arrived. I was a bit apprehensive about going to a Roman Catholic retreat centre. The truth of the matter was, I was raised an Anglican, or should I say an Episcopalian, as I was born and brought up in New York. Although, uh, after living and teaching for many years on this side of the Atlantic... I'd all but lost my American accent. I met my wife at Harvard, and we married and settled down in Edinburgh after we graduated. Now, it's all rather embarrassing for someone like me to admit it, but the truth of the matter is I'd become spiritually bankrupt. I knew that the root of the problem was that despite my religious upbringing, I'd simply stopped praying seriously while studying for my doctorate. "'By the Saturday night, I knew the retreat had been a flop, "'at least as far as I was concerned. "'So I was feeling a little depressed "'when I went into the lounge after supper. "'There was only one other person in the room, "'a quiet, unassuming young woman whom I noticed before "'but never spoke to. "'She introduced herself as Sheila Watson. "'When she asked me how I found the course, "'I tried to be as noncommittal as possible.' to find out how she felt about it first. I was quite taken aback when she said that although the weekend had been a break for her, she received nothing of value from the various talks. She explained that she was an ordinary housewife with six children and was taking advantage of her mother's prolonged stay with the family to have a few days off. The family had come to realize and accept that occasionally mum must have a break. Her reactions to the course were exactly the same as mine, except that I felt she was able to verbalize her misgivings far better than me. In fact, I had the distinct impression that she knew exactly what she was talking about when it came to prayer." There was a profound sense of compassion, too, that simply radiated from her. It was as if she were entering into me when I began to speak. She listened to me with an attention that I'd never experienced before. It was as if I really mattered to her, as if she really cared. No, there was no as if about it, she really did. She was not just playing the role of the sympathetic listener. She was not just simulating the virtue of Christian love. This was the real thing, and I'd never really experienced it before. It was not so much what she said, but who she was. All I knew was her obvious care and concern touched something deep down within me, and I found it easy to tell her all about myself. She admitted that the greatest help she'd had in her life was from her spiritual director, a man of extraordinary in adept depth and perception, whom she felt quite certain was a living saint. Now, to hear someone of her spiritual calibre talking of someone else to whom she owed everything as a living saint simply intrigued me but before I could ask her, and as if anticipating my desire, she said that she thought that I would find him a great help to me. But I said I couldn't possibly see him at least on a regular basis, as I hardly ever visit London. Oh, I don't see him regularly, she said. In fact, I've never seen him at all. For one awful moment... I thought I'd been talking to some sort of religious crackpot and she was about to tell me that it was the Archangel Gabriel or one of the saints who was her spiritual director but she added quickly, my only contact with him is by post, he is she said a hermit, if you like I'll send you his address and you can write to him yourself, she was as good as her word, I didn't tell her at the time but I had plans of my own. Plans that would change the whole direction of my future life. All of a sudden the plane rolled smoothly onto her side. Simultaneously we heard the voice of the captain. Our present altitude is about 12,000 feet and we're now passing over the island of Mull. The panoramic view of the Grampian mountain range was superb. "'Although I'd made this trip several times before, "'it was the first time that I could see anything "'apart from bank after bank of dirty woollen clouds.' "'The pilot continued. "'If you look down to the left, "'you'll be able to see quite clearly the island of Iona, "'just off the extreme south coast of Mull. "'I couldn't care what they thought of me. "'I may never have this opportunity again.' "'I stood up, smiled profusely, and rudely leaned immediately in front of my fellow passenger on the other side of the gangway. I could see he was not particularly pleased by my ill-mannered intrusion into his airspace, but I couldn't care less. I wanted to see Iona, (laughs) and I did too, and very clearly indeed. My mind wandered back to the first letter I received from Peter. Sheila wrote as she promised, giving me his address. But after I received Sheila's letter, I began to realize something quite clearly. I had no desire to enter into a lifelong correspondence with a faceless spiritual director, however helpful he might turn out to be. I knew quite clearly what I wanted to do. I wanted to go to Barra to meet Peter myself, face to face. So I decided to write to him immediately. I explained what happened to me and how I almost committed suicide and how I became almost an alcoholic after the death of my wife. I said, of course, I I fully realized his predicament and, uh, of course, it wouldn't do if everyone wanted to consult him personally. However, I went on to stress the terrible mess that I was in and how, without his help, I may yet end my life as all seemed to be purposeless. I do remember feeling a bit of a fraud when I was sealing the letter, for I knew I'd overcome the worst thanks to the help I'd received, and to tell the truth, I no longer had any thought of taking my life. I had to wait about six weeks before Peter's letter arrived. I dashed up to my room, closed the door like an excited schoolboy, and settled down to read it undisturbed. Dear James, I must say I was somewhat embarrassed by the complete confidence that you placed in me. I do hope Sheila has not been giving you the wrong impression. To be quite frank with you, I'm only an ordinary bloke and don't really feel I've anything to offer you. I feel quite apart from anything else, it would be a waste of time and money to trek all the way out here just to see me. "'I will attempt to answer your letter in more detail in a few days, "'as I'm a bit snowed under with work at the moment, "'and I would need more time to think about the many issues that you raised. "'Once again, my apologies for the delay. "'Best wishes, Peter. "'I scanned through the letter very quickly the first time, "'interested in only one thing. "'Did he say yes or did he say no to my proposed visit?' As soon as I discovered that the answer was no, I put the letter down. I was deeply disappointed. I'd been pinning everything on going to Barra to meet him. I read it once more, carefully. It said nothing to diminish my expectation of him. If anything, it increased them. Somehow the style of the letter and the tone seemed to confirm all my hopes, "'Yes, it was a very ordinary, matter-of-fact letter. "'No religious epigrams, no pious literary exclamations, "'not even a religious catchphrase with which to end the letter, "'just the non-committal best wishes, Peter. "'Funnily enough, all this impressed rather than put me off. "'It had a, a genuine ring about it. "'Yes, I liked its tone.' "'Truth to tell, I think I'd already canonized him in my mind anyway, "'not just because of Sheila's introduction or the tone of the letter, "'but because I desperately needed a guru, "'or anyone for that matter who could help me "'before I gave up the struggle for spiritual survival. "'There was one ray of hope, however, and I jumped at it. "'He said it would be a waste of time and money "'to trek all the way out here just to see me.' "'But what if I was going anyway? "'What if I'd actually booked my holiday in Barra "'before his letter arrived? "'I knew it was a lie, "'but I was prepared to do anything to see him. "'I thanked him for his letter "'and said how sorry I was to hear that he was so busy. i then explained that I'd actually arranged "'to have my holidays in Barra. "'Furthermore, I'd stayed there before, "'even before I'd met Sheila.' and that I'd arranged to stay with Miss McLean at Arvinish, as I'd stayed with her before. Then came the master stroke, or so I thought. I went on to say that I'd be going to Mass on Sunday, so I'd be seeing him anyway. I didn't say that I was not even a Roman Catholic. I thought that could wait for later. When Peter replied and agreed to see me, I didn't know what to do, what to think, or how to react. "'One part of me wanted to shout out triumphantly, "'I've done it, I've done it!' "'Yet another part of me wanted to squirm "'with the shame at the way that I'd done it "'and the thought of the sly way that I'd trapped him. "'He might be a hermit, but that didn't make him a fool. "'Of course he knew he didn't need to be a seer "'to see through me.' As we left the mainland, there was nothing further to see after gazing at the sublime highland scenery, so I opened a book on St. Francis of Assisi that belonged to the hermit. It was given to me by my friend Sheila Watson, who didn't want to risk sending it in the post, so she asked me to return it to him in person. There'd be no time to read the whole book, so what I decided to do was to read those passages that the hermit had meticulously underlined in pencil. I knew that Peter had been professed as a secular Franciscan before he sought out his solitude, so I thought by reading these passages it would help me to understand something of his Franciscan soul. So I began to read. It was the deep personal prayer that led to mystical contemplation, that St. Francis of Assisi first learnt in his hermitage home, Le just outside Assisi. For this prayer to develop, Francis needed protracted periods of time in solitude. That is why he founded hermitages wherever he went, for himself and for his followers. Long before the divine office was introduced into the order, personal mental prayer was the staple diet of the early Franciscans. Saint Bonaventure makes quite clear in his life of Francis. He writes, they spent their time praying continuously, devoting their time especially to fervent mental prayer. They had not yet acquired liturgical books, so they couldn't chant the divine office. In order to make more time for personal prayer, Francis eventually shortened the long monastic office that took monks hours to perform. For instance, in the Cluniac reform of Benedictinism, it took up to eight hours. Saint Francis rejected this long office in favour of what came to be called the Roman office, because it was used by the members of the Roman Curia, and was far shorter. This is the office that all secular priests say to this day. It was not because they didn't love the divine office, which they eventually said every day, but because they wanted to create ever more time for prayer. The prayer in which their personal love of Jesus Christ would enable His love to enter into them, drawing them up into His personal mystical contemplation. In this sublime prayer, They would first glimpse and gaze upon the glory of God before sharing that glory beginning in this life. It would be this profound contemplative prayer that would become the hallmark not only of the Franciscans but of the other mendicant orders like the Dominicans, the Carmelites and the Augustinians. That is why when explaining their very raison d'etre St. Thomas Aquinas said that it was to contemplate and to share the fruits of contemplation with others. In these words, he was not only summing up the calling and the vocation of the mendicant orders, but of the whole church and every individual member of the church from the very beginning to the present day. Contemplation is not the chosen way for a few exceptional holy souls, as we have wrongly been led to believe. It is for all. Once again, and for the last time, I heard the captain speaking. We were approaching Barra. Then, all of a sudden, my stomach suddenly lurched forward as the plane gently stuttered in her descent. Then, oh then, what a view! Literally out of the blue, the plain dropped to less than a thousand feet. There seemed to be miles upon miles of impressive silver sand. The silver sands of Barra. No, this wasn't the southern seas, nor was it the Aegean. This was Barra in all her magnificence. I have seen other beaches that may claim to rival hers, but nowhere have I seen such delicate shades of colour in the sea. Blue, emerald green and maroon predominate, but almost every shade of each merged into one another to form a panorama of pastel splendour. This was indeed paradise on earth. The plain straightened and swooped down, I knew that Peter's Island home would be visible from the other side of the plane. It couldn't have been more than a couple of miles away. I could see the great cockle beach on which we were preparing to land. We were almost upon it. I could just see a small group of people standing next to the tiny air terminal. A couple of cars had stopped along the road to watch the landing. This was it. This was the moment the plane had been waiting for. She might be just another unimportant, undersized nobody at Glasgow Airport, but out here she was Queen of the Isles. Even the soaring eagle of hellasay would have to stand aside as she came to inspect her dominions reaching the top of her imperious swoop over the sea she banked up this time to the left affording new and enchanting views to the passengers as she turned to make the most of her final entrance with all the haughty dignity that she could summon the journey was over the plane landed and taxied over to the air terminal where father callum the parish priest was waiting to greet me He boarded the plane for the return flight, and I drove off to North Bay. It was scarcely two miles away. I didn't go in for lunch. Suddenly, suddenly I became tired, very tired. It had been a tiring day, but one of the most unforgettable days in the whole of my life. Almost the perfect day. Could it be the beginning of the perfect week? Thank you for joining David Talkington for The Hermit, part one, from his book Wisdom from the Western Isles. The music, Tromorai, from Dreams from Childhood, was composed by Schumann and performed by the Catholic concert pianist Vincent Billington. The Hermit was produced and edited by Bobby Talkington.